When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Strike Talk. The idea was actually not a bad one, forming a movie company in which movie stars were the owners. They would take less money up front for a real share of profits and creative control. To make it work, the stars would each pledge to make three movies for the studio. Easy. That's how First Artist was launched in 1969 by no less than Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier, and Barbara Streisand. It was the ultimate expression of the new Hollywood, dreamed up by two agents, Freddie Field and future Czech forger David Bagelman. There were problems from the start. Each of the stars had committed to make movies for other studios who were now technically their new company's competition. Second, First Artists had been modeled on the 1919 founding of United Artists by Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and Klan apologist D.W. Griffith, and that company had floundered in its first 10 years. But First Artists gave it a real shot. In 1970, Steve McQueen became a new principal. In 1972, Dustin Hoffman joined. But by 1975, its sixth year, the company had only made seven films and its distribution partner had gone out of business. In 76, McQueen decided that being a studio owner meant he could make movies no other studio would allow. So he blew up to 200 pounds, grew a beard, and starred in an adaptation of Ibsen's An Enemy of the People that was so dreadful it was never even released. He then sued his own studio. Hoffman also sued the studio for $65 million, claiming first artists had robbed him of creative control on two movies, Agatha and Straight Time. In 1978, to gain revenue, first artists bought a shirt company, which, like the studio itself, was coming apart at the seams. Meanwhile, its principals kept making movies for other studios. Newman and McQueen starred together in The Towering Inferno for Fox and Warners. By 1980, First Artist stock was trading at $4 per share, and the company folded. It was not, of course, the first case of a major alliance that had failed. 70% of all business partnerships go bust. The causes most commonly cited are misaligned goals and lack of trust. That's certainly what did in the non-aggression treaty between Hitler and Stalin in 1939. Their Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which carved up Poland between them, worked beautifully until, and here's the misaligned goals part, Hitler launched a spring offensive into Russia in 1941. Partners who want to destroy one another tend to form unstable partnerships, which brings me to the AMPTP. The ancestor of the AMPTP was formed in 1924. 
Today, the organization represents 350 American TV and film companies and negotiates 80 industry-wide collective bargaining agreements. Whenever I think of the AMPTP, I am reminded of the famous quote from Ned Tannen, who once ran Universal. In show business, Tannen said, it's not enough to succeed. Your friends must also fail. The members of the AMPTP are not friends. They kill one another on a daily basis for market share. They try to weaken one another so they can eat one another, as Disney did with Fox. Their goals are deeply misaligned. Legacy media companies live quarter to quarter, which is why Comcast gave Peacock a 2024 deadline to achieve profitability. Amazon and Apple, new members of the AMPTP, don't issue such mandates because they're using their production units merely to sell toothbrushes and iPhones and cloud services and don't actually care if those studios become profitable. And Netflix, which joined the AMPTP in 2021, has famously attempted to put all its partners out of business with a strategy of predatory pricing and hiding data so as to make it impossible for anyone to tell what a movie or TV show on a streamer is actually worth. It's important to remember that when the AMPTP says no to a proposal offered by a union or guild, that no is rarely unanimous. Often just one player in that room can offer an objection that will force the entire alliance to hold out. That is happening as we speak in the SAG negotiations, in which reps from various companies are openly arguing with one another at the big table while the SAG negotiating committee watches. It's a mess. Yes, the AMPTP was able to craft a deal with the DGA, but even the most charitable of onlookers would have to conclude that the DGA's strategy of never pushing back has made that guild largely irrelevant in Hollywood's labor movement. More telling and more troubling is the AMPTP's 2021 agreement with IOTC, which drew a tepid approval of 50.3% yes and 49.7% no from that union's membership. Clearly, the anti-union DNA of the tech companies is profoundly impacting the AMPTP stance in all negotiations. So the question becomes, has the AMPTP outlived its usefulness? Do its member companies share the same goals? Today, it seems as though the only thing they all agree on is that writers and actors don't matter, but AI does. But writers and actors have made places like Paramount rich, and Netflix is actually trying to make Paramount extinct. So what would happen if the WGA and SAG offered to make a deal with the legacy companies and not Netflix, Apple, and Amazon? If the two guilds said, you want to hurt your competition? Sign up, go back into production, and leave them out. There are precedents for this. In 1975, Universal and Paramount left the AMPTP to form their own alliance. UA and Disney threatened to follow suit. Why shouldn't the AMPTP, which even AI itself called a false construct on this very podcast, become one of those 70% of all business partnerships that fail. Remember, misaligned goals and lack of trust. It killed the partnerships of Neiman Marcus and Target, eBay and PayPal, AOL and Time Warner, AT&T and T-Mobile, McDonald's and Heinz, and the partnership of Poitiers, Streisand, Newman, McQueen, and Hoffman. No writer would ever expect the studios to put artists first, but the way this alliance is now flailing, it's looking a lot like first artists. To examine that with me, I have three experts on the show today. Scott Galloway is a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and host of the Prof G and Pivot podcast. Michael Pachter is managing director at Wedbush Securities, specializing in their entertainment sector. Joe Flint covers media and entertainment for the Wall Street Journal with three decades of experience on that beat. Welcome to you all. Thank you for being here. Here's question number one. Amazon is a cloud business, then a retail business, then a studio. 
Apple is worth $3 trillion without producing a frame of television. Comcast is a cable company. Disney is a lot of things, theme parks, etc., with a huge library to protect. Netflix has only one business. Why are these companies good partners? Michael, we'll start with you. I don't think these companies view themselves as partners. I think they view themselves as allies, and that's different. Um, fighting for a common goal, but not necessarily, you know, ignoring their, their own self-interest. And, you know, we're partners if one gains all gain, uh, allies, not necessarily. And, you know, I think I'd point to something as simple as the, the DVD distribution window back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, it used to be kind of consistent at, you know, over 100 days, 105 days. And then in lockstep, everybody agreed it would be 90. And then in lockstep, everybody agreed it would be 70 and then 60 and now 45. So they all kind of work together even though there's not any you know, stated shared goal, but they work together until somebody screws it up. And you know, so I think there's 168 hours in the week. We spend you know, roughly 40 hours entertaining ourselves somehow. And Netflix would love to capture as many of those 40 hours as possible, but they acknowledge that we're gonna spend some time watching the news, you know, watching live sports. So we're not going to consume all of our, our entertainment on Netflix. Um, I think they would love it, it is it is zero sum. So they would love to capture share at the expense of the other guys, but it's not actually in anybody's best interest for any of these guys to go away. And you know, again, I think that all of them now are competing for content. Um, there is a scarce amount of content available, and they'd still like to spend as little as possible. So. You know, when they bid against one another, um, the, you guys, unfortunately, take the brunt of what they're willing to pay pay you. But, boy, actors can get whatever they want. That's why I think this, the SAG strike is so important that, you know, they they know that the public sides with the actors because we know who they are. And we may or may not side with the writers because we only know, you know, the writers of our favorite shows. Joe? Well, uh, first, thanks for thanks for having me. And to Michael's point, I was going to try to be a little more pithy and just say you know, the old, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so in, in this case, right, all these companies have different agendas, as you accurately pointed out. Amazon and Apple are in the business for one reason, Warner and uh, NBC Universal or Paramount for another. And it's, it, they all have differing agendas. And even here, why it's such a struggle, we talk about, of course, all the demands of the writers and the actors, and they can't come to terms with these companies. All these companies also have differing agendas that make getting a deal done difficult. Uh, we're going to no doubt talk about the lack of transparency that streamers provide in terms of who's watching their content and how big an issue that is for the writers, for the actors, for everyone involved to then figure out what's fair value in residuals, what's fair value for minimum pay, all of these things. Before David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery became Hollywood's new favorite punching bag, this was the strike that Netflix had wrought because of the way they had changed the business model, had tried to spend everyone out of, you know, out of business and now all the major issues had to do with streaming and much of them really tied to how Netflix operates streaming. And that's to your point. Could we see a world where some of these folks break off and do their own 
deal. I don't know if we're there yet, but let's come back three years from now when it's time to do this again and see if these media companies aren't thinking exactly that. Why, why even be part of this alliance if we can cut our own deal and avoid you know, having to be on the same page with all these people that we buy from, sell to, compete against, try to undercut, yada, yada, yada. Are those differing interests being served by the position they're taking right now? Scott, what do you think? Look, yes, if they're good partners. Uh, I'm not as familiar with Netflix. I'm very familiar with Amazon. Uh, a third of my students go to work for Amazon. I work with them. Amazon will refer to their third-party retail partners as partners. Uh, Amazon and the most of big tech partners with a retailer or a content creator the way a virus partners with a host. And that is it typically ends up working for one of them. And what it comes down to is in a capitalist society with two parties, each will serve their, to the extent they can in terms of leverage, IP, channel, capital. We'll try and negotiate the best deal possible. And the problem is when you let a company aggregate 50 cents on the e-commerce dollar, it's effectively a monopoly. If you're a retailer and you want your stock price to go up, you have to show growth uh, in e-commerce. Otherwise, your stock will get taken down and management doesn't make any money. And if you want to show growth in e-commerce, all roads lead to this giant toll booth or this giant funnel into the e-commerce world called Amazon. And as a result, Amazon, the percentage of gross revenue they take from a third-party retailer has gone from 19% to over 40% as they have slowly but surely leveraged their monopoly power. So the larger question is, it, it, show me a good partner and I'll show you someone that doesn't have monopoly power. Show me someone that's quote unquote abusing their power as a partner and I'll show you someone who has had access to cheap capital, has engaged in predatory pricing, prices the product below market. Every, almost every player you mentioned is give, you know, Netflix for the first 10 years gave you $30 worth of content for $12. And majority of, of of providers couldn't do that. Their shareholders wouldn't let them do that. And once they got to 200 million, they started exerting their power. They did raise prices on consumer, but they also are gonna leverage their power in the channel on their providers and their talent. So I don't know if it's as bad at Netflix because I'm not as familiar with the firm, but talk to any retailer that's manufacturing suitcases or candles about the relationship with Amazon, and they're gonna have their head in their hands because here's what it means. When you're dealing with monopoly, you're a terms, condition, and price taker. You have no choice. It's like when there's only one business in town, they have all the control of your wages. So I'm going to posit that if Netflix has the kind of dominance I see in the marketplace, that on certain levels, there's probably a lot of frustration around dealing with them because there's a lack of leverage, which feeds into this notion, and I'll stop talking, around the DOJ and the FTC have been asleep at the switch and let a small number of firms just aggregate too much power. When you talk about companies that make bad partners, to me, um, Netflix being a part of the AMPTP is like Amazon being in the Association of American Bookstores. Amazon destroyed American bookstores. That's not a good partner for them. Netflix is having a similar effect in that it was the Netflix model, the streaming model, that all the other companies chased off a cliff to their great harm. So if you are Warner's or you are Comcast or you're Paramount or you're Sony or even Disney, how is it in your best interest to be allied with Netflix 
who has a monopoly and can therefore price in a predatory way, or Amazon or Apple, none of whom need you. Michael? Scott actually said this very well in, in mellifluous tones as well. Netflix doesn't charge enough. And if you if you kind of look at commercial broadcast television, uh, average cable bills like 85 bucks, average uh, ad, ad burden is about 65 bucks. And I'm just making it add up to $150. And we watch about 150 hours a month. So a dollar per hour. That's what the consumer is bearing to, to consume their content. Netflix is $15 for over 40 hours. So less than 50 cents an hour. Where did that 50, 60 cents of lost revenue go? And the answer is losses. So the guys who are trying to compete with Netflix are getting their asses kicked and they're panicking and they're saying, let's extract our pound of flesh from the writers next to the actors, next to the directors. They don't know how to compete with Netflix. And Netflix is making up for it by producing overseas content, by cutting sweet deals for library content. Uh, they've actually managed the business really, really well. But everybody, everybody in this business should hate them because they have driven down the revenue per hour of, of entertainment consumption. And if the revenues per hour aren't there, there's just not enough money to pay everybody. So the worst thing that ever happened was everybody emulating Netflix. And, you know, I, I can't tell you what Disney Plus earns or loses. Peacock for sure and Paramount Plus for sure are losing money. Um, Disney Plus might be okay because they, they rely more on catalog content, but they're probably closer to profitability. And the beginning of this vicious cycle was when content showed up on Netflix relatively proximate to when it showed up on broadcast television because it was easy to cut the cord. It was easy to get rid of that $150 revenue stream and switch over to Netflix. And everybody's making it easier and easier. Disney announcing ESPN as a subscription service is literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Smart people doing dumb things. Honestly, I think Scott said it perfectly. Netflix is priced too low and copying Netflix is a bad, bad business model. Amazon's a little different because they're trying to make the prime subscription so valuable that if I don't buy anything this month, I won't feel like I got screwed because I didn't have any free deliveries because I watched Jack Ryan. So I get that. Apple is a giant service business. I mean, they charge for Apple Care. They, they collect VIG on the App Store. So I think they're thinking ultimately we're going to get everybody to pay us 60 bucks a year, you know, not 900 million iPhone owners. Maybe that'll work. I don't know. But um, Netflix different, Peacock way different and wrong. Disney Plus way different and wrong. Yeah, if I may, I mean, a lot of good points from everyone. Netflix has always been this, yeah, they couldn't decide what to do. Uh, the, the studios and everyone, I could argue, built Netflix. They built it by selling them their library content, their TV shows. It was their content that got Netflix to where it was. And then Netflix was able to add original shows and recognize, hey, sometime or another, these guys are going to figure out it's not so smart to sell us everything and they're going to want to do this themselves. Yeah, they were drawn by the dollars. They became addicted to Netflix overpaying for reruns of NCIS or, you know, tons of money to buy friends. One of the things I think we want to get at here is a lot of these companies, they're not entrepreneurial anymore. They're not run by entertainment visionaries, programming geniuses. They're run by people trying to meet the quarterly expectations of Wall Street, which is usually leads to a lot of short-term thinking. So they helped build Netflix up. Then they decided they had to compete with Netflix. But by that point, Netflix was already far ahead of the game. So 
these companies, whether it's Disney Plus, which is you know, still not profitable. They've said fall of uh, late fall 2024. We'll see. I'm not sure I'd hold my breath on that. Paramount Plus losing a lot of money. Peacock losing a lot of money. Max, that's the new HBO Max minus the HBO. Uh, they had a profitable quarter in the U.S. We'll see what happens, uh, you know, if that continues. But globally, it's going to be a ways away. And they're all charging too little. They kind of created Netflix in a way through all their deal making. And now they're trying to emulate it uh, at a time when even Netflix recognizes we need to slow down how much we spend. We need to launch an ad tier to bring in new revenue because our sub growth is slowing. And Netflix is the only one that generates profits. And even their profits, they're not huge. I would still argue that you can make a case that Netflix stock is way overvalued. Well, Scott, let me ask you, if we know that the cost of production of an episode of television in the last 10 years has doubled, literally doubled, and during that same period, um, writers are making 24% less in that exact same space. Nobody can possibly believe that the reason the costs are going up is because writers are making too much. And yet, it's writers and actors that are actually having to dig in and fight back. And I understand this is part of a, a larger issue. I mean, everyone in the business is in, is in a portfolio business. But as you look at this, what do you think is the source of that cost doubling over the course of 10 years? Michael got to this. Uh, the original sin here is that in the early 2000s, investors, so if you want to understand behavior, you got to understand compensation. We live in a capitalist society. Your kid's opportunity, your selection set of mates, and generally if people laugh at your jokes is a function of how much money you make. And so compensation is not based on behavior at these companies or decisions aren't based on what's good for the world, what's good for the union, whether they're Democratic or Republican values. It's what gets my stock price up while I'm here and while I'm investing shares. That's what drives decisions and behavior. And in the early 2000s, the markets went through a seminal shift. And that was the market started bidding up the stocks of companies that were growing instead of profitable. They replaced profitability with growth. And so while Amazon was hemorrhaging money, giving you a dollar worth of service or a dollar worth of stuff for 80 cents, the market said, as long as you continue to grow and take share from Walmart and Macy's, we're going to bid your stock up and the people that are going to get rich. And Netflix is the closest analog. Netflix came in with just totally non-economic terms in terms of bidding up. I would imagine it was a great time for a while in Hollywood to be an original scripted writer, gaffer. I would just think that they, they had a ton of money to throw around. And they created just a non-economic value proposition. So um, Pulse Marketing of One, I love CNN. And I came home, I'm in New York. I just got here from London. I want to watch Reed Zakaria. I go on to Hulu, which has a live TV offering, and it's like 60 or 70 bucks to flip on per month to flip on live TV. And I did the same math that Michael did. I thought, okay, how much do I watch cable television for 60 bucks and Netflix is 12? I mean, it just is striking. And so what we have is an unusual dynamic where a lot of companies have made a lot of money and gotten rich off of what some people would call predatory pricing. And that is they price their goods below their cost. And then the other guys, the Disney's of the world, have old time shareholders who will not tolerate these types of losses. So they can't maintain, they can't maintain this arms race. I think you're helping me make my point. When I hear you talk about how Netflix operates or how Amazon operates, I keep coming back to the idea of why on earth would Disney, Comcast, 
Warner's, Paramount, Sony, why would they want Netflix or Amazon or Apple to be calling the tune in any labor negotiation? And what would happen if it's now um, Tuesday, as we're having this conversation, if tomorrow night at midnight, SAG walks out and there is no longer any production? Why at that point would the legacy media companies believe that it's still in their best interest to have their production shut down because it's going to ultimately benefit Netflix and Amazon. Michael, what, what do you think about that? Scott said something that was incredibly insightful that, that everyone gets paid for the share price going up and the fallacy uh, of streaming is that when Netflix trades at the 30 or 40 multiple and Disney trades at a 10 or 12 multiple, Disney's board genuinely believes that they'll get a 30 multiple on Disney Plus if Disney Plus can just ever get profitable. And Paramount's board feels that way about Paramount Plus. So they all think if we just act just like Netflix, we're going to make more money. So they're all aligned in that they all have the same end goal, which is produce content cheaply and leverage that with tons of subscribers. Um, they This death wish for Netflix is separate. And I don't know that anybody making a decision on what to pay per episode is thinking about that. They think about it when they're bidding on a show, when there's a new new show or movie up for bid, they're all thinking about how they have to beat Netflix. I, I am a little surprised that the writers make so little because the number of scripted series has literally tripled in the last 15 years. So a lot more content's being created. And I'm also surprised that the production companies are, are balking at paying writers 20% more when they could just cut the number of series by 20%. I mean, they could produce 400 shows instead of 500, pay 20% more. The 100 they're going to cut is the crap anyway. I mean, I don't actually see them losing very much. So it's shocking to me that an accommodation can't be reached. If this drags on, we're going to notice, you know, when our favorite show doesn't come back in September. I think September is kind of the drop dead date. We're going to notice when regularly scheduled broadcasts just don't show up. Joe? Uh, you know, one of the advantages for Netflix is as the newcomer, as the disruptor is, of course, the residuals they've been paying. I mean, first, they were hardly paying anything. And even now, far trail the rest of the industry. So traditional media kind of has its hand, one hand tied behind its back. So I think there's part of the industry that thinks whatever happens out of this, Netflix is still going to be shouldering more of a load than they, they have been. There are still three companies that are making money off of broadcast television. Abbott Elementary and Young Sheldon are, you know, money-making machines in ways that Netflix can't compete with. And those broadcast companies just got hammered at the upfront. Um, again, why are they tying themselves to companies who don't share that interest? I would think part of it is a strength in, in numbers, it's, it's almost making Netflix play by the same rules as, as everyone else in the hopes that somehow that will help even things out for everyone. But, but to Scott's point earlier, uh, 
the dream of Comcast and Disney is to have analysts in the street view their stocks the way that Netflix was viewed and Amazon was viewed to be seen as a tech company. And that's just not going to happen because when we still look at Disney or Comcast, we look at slow melting ice cube businesses like ESPN, like ABC, like NBC. And then they look at the streaming and say, you guys are so far behind the eight ball and spending so much, so much money. Why would we value you like that? It's, I mean, I just, I, I don't think there's an easy answer for them to solve that dilemma they have. Um, and to your point of wanting to be in the same business, I just think it has probably been a determination that it is easier for them all to ne- try to negotiate together despite their varying agendas than for everyone to do it separately. I just wonder if that's also in the best interest of the writers, actors, and, and directors at this point. Well, clearly it's not. I mean, the, as I said, the DGA doesn't seem to mind, but the, the WGA and SAG obviously do. Again, I, I personally believe, knowing a, what little I know about what SAG is asking for, I believe they cannot get those things without a strike. They're, they're just strike issues. And one of them, which I'd like all of you to address, has to do with transparency. If SAG, like the Writers Guild, is asking for success-based residuals on streaming, That would require Netflix, like any streamer, to open its books, to be transparent about how many people are actually watching a Netflix program and therefore to assign some sort of valuation to that program. That's what a success-based residual is. Isn't Netflix going to have to do that anyway if Netflix is selling commercial space on its programs? Wouldn't advertisers demand to know how many people are watching a given show? Now, with so little transparency in this, uh, you know, thing, basically like, yeah, take our word for it. This is what's what's going on. Uh, I think people are reaching a breaking point on that, not only in your world, but on Wall Street from analysts. I think there's a lot of frustration about the lack of transparency. Michael? Ultimately, Netflix is going to have to capture it. I don't know that it'll become public record, but it'll become audited and at a minimum provided to the unions. If Netflix is in such great shape to withstand this stoppage by the writers, but ABC, NBC, and CBS are not, they are actually feeling something in a very real way. Why would they align themselves with Netflix? I think that's a fair point because they they get compensation and the value of their stock is driven by different different dynamics. The, the one point I do want to make though is that I think sometimes these battles are misdirects and that they're focused on the wrong enemy. I consulted to Nike and Adidas, to Walmart and to Target, and I would say, you think each other are your enemies? You're not, they're not. Your enemy is in Seattle, your enemy is Amazon. And I would suggest the one place there should be some overlap in the unions and the studio should be binding together is their enemy is ChatGPT and Microsoft. And that is they should have a united front around developing their own generative AI that tracks what content from the studios and the creators and the writers. And there should be enough to go around here such that they present a united front and say, we have our own LLMs that show that Modern Family is informing your, your generative AI and we expect to be compensated. My team, when they draft stuff for me, they'll come back and say, yeah, we told ChatGPT to do this in the voice of Scott Galloway. And I'm like, so how does ChatGPT know my voice? 
And if they're using my voice such that, or anyone else's voice by crawling all of my content such that they can inform content they're producing that they're charging people for, I should be compensated. And so should every other writer. Just as there are organizations representing music artists that say, okay, KROQ 106.7 in Los Angeles, which we grew up with, Billy, plays 1,100 Madonna songs 30,000 times. They send the, the rights organization a check and Madonna gets 90 cents of that. I think that's what you guys should be working on is how you figure out a way to identify how your work is informing these powerful tools and get compensated for it. But to use some historical context here, an example, about 15 years ago, I was on the board of the New York Times. I was brought on as quote unquote, the tech guy. And my first board meeting, I said, we should shut Google's crawlers off. They're crawling our gorgeous content and then running ads against it. They're much better at it. And they said, no, we, 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 they send us traffic. And I'm like, we're getting nickels, they're getting dollars. We should shut them off. And I believe the, the analogy is the same here. I think the studios and the writers and the actors all need to bind together and say, these AI companies that have much deeper funding than us, have much deeper expertise in technology, cannot crawl our content unless they compensate us. That is the real issue here. Can AI itself figure out the algorithm for how that compensation should work? That's, it feels like an existential question, but my sense is you could come up, generative AI should be able to identify that Billy Ray's uh, script from 1994 of this uh, informed this. And as a result, he gets 0.0007% of something. Uh, it, it, we figured it out with music. We have figured it out with, you know, all sorts of different types of IP and content. Uh, I would I would agree with Scott's point that uh, the studios uh, have as much interest in making sure that they're being compensated for artificial intelligence as as the actors do. Disney owns Modern Family, so not only should Steve Levitan be worried about it, but so should Disney. Michael, I have two anecdotes that I think will uh, prove Scott's point about how. AI should compensate the or, the origin of the, the source that they're using. Um, one is that uh, Getty Images isn't is just in the midst of a lawsuit against an AI firm that misappropriated twelve thousand of their photos because the the firm is trying to generate digital wins of actors and celebrities, and the source material is Getty Images. So they're they're going to win that, and that's going to be a seminal case. The second anecdote, and this just reminds me of my law school days, I'm sorry, it brings me back to my law school days. There was a very famous case in the 1940s. It was Bella Lugosi's estate because a costume company made a Dracula costume and the mask, the mask was Bella Lugosi's likeness and he had just died. And the, the family sued saying they misappropriated his likeness and they won. So I actually think the law is pretty settled here. I think Scott Galloway can say, write a paper in my voice because it's his content, but I don't think I can do that. I can't say write a paper in Scott Galloway's voice. That would be misappropriating his original IP. And I think that you're right. It, it probably will require legislation to settle it, but my goodness, the writers are not the only people with something at stake here. Every celebrity has something at stake. Every, every creator of content has something at stake. So I actually think Congress, they can't agree on very much, but I think they can agree on this one that you want to protect creators because it encourages innovation. I saw in three negotiations as the 
co-head of the negotiating committee of the Guild, that when the ABTP wants us not to strike, there's a very simple remedy, which is they give us enough so that we can't strike. They give us enough so that our, our membership won't be infuriated. And then, of course, the strike threat goes away. Carol Lombardini had that opportunity with the Writers Guild. It was really not that hard to figure out on the back of an envelope what percentage of our demands she had to acquiesce to in order to take away our strike leverage. She gave none of those things because her plan was for the Guild to walk out. And then, of course, the DGA would walk in and make its deal and put pressure back on the writers. I don't think that she saw SAG coming in in the way that SAG has come in. And once again, she can make the decision to give SAG enough to make a strike impossible. She's not doing that. So we're going to wind up with two major guilds uh, going on strike and production shutting down, maybe not on Squid Game 2, but on everything that's made in America. So you cannot define what the AMPTP has done as successful negotiations. Given that, is the AMPTP a success? Are the needs of its constituent members being served by this alliance in this moment? I would have thought if someone was going to try to do it differently, it would be one of the tech companies. It would be Netflix. It would be uh, an Apple that says, you know what? This isn't our game. We'll do a side deal. But all these companies have to do business with each other. You know, Netflix buys shows from Warner. Apple gets shows from Warner. They all kind of need to be on the same page. That's why they may not be partners but they are allied in this sort of battle because it's easier than, than not. For now, three years from now might be a different story. Michael? My answer to your question is no. The, the other side has not done a, a, a perfect job of managing this. This should have been settled right away. I can't imagine that writers' pay is more than 5% of the cost of, of production. So I don't get this. I mean, 20, a 20% increase is a one percentage point increase in the cost of production. It makes no sense whatsoever, um, yet th they've drawn a line in the sand. The actors are going to win this for you because the, the consumer does know about the actors. They know who they are, and, and they'll see them you know, bringing pizzas and honoring picket lines, and they'll care. So um, that's good. I mean, I like that the actors are striking. I think that's really beneficial to you guys. We're going to leave it there because this one may not be solvable in a, a single episode. But I'd ask you to consider this. On November 1st, 1918, a year before United Artists was launched, a train was heading from Brooklyn to Brighton Beach when it approached a turn at Malbone Street. The turn was meant to be taken at 6 miles per hour, but the conductor was doing 35. The engine jumped the tracks, the rest of the cars followed, and 102 passengers died. It's important to remember that in all train derailments, it's only one car that goes off the rails. The others go off because they're attached to that errant car, coupled, allied, tethered, like Sandra Bullock to the parachute that nearly drowns her in gravity. The member companies of the AMPTP are coupled in this same way, just as they were when negotiations with the WGA began. That train was approaching a curve that required some caution, but someone decided to floor it, and 350 cars now find themselves off the tracks. This episode for me was about trying to understand how that could have been possible. I'm not sure we did that. We may have simply made the AMPTP's behavior more perplexing. Again, strikes in Hollywood are easy to avoid. You don't have to give a guild everything. All you have to do is give it something. 
some percentage of its demands, not enough to satisfy it or even help it necessarily, but enough to rob its membership of their willingness to walk out. The AMPTP could have done this at very little cost and kept the guild working. Someone in that alliance, one of those ambitious little cars, refused. I don't know why, but I do know this. It is the companies who were driving that train, not the writers. They derailed it, both with the writers and now with SAG. And every one of them, eventually, will realize that uncoupling themselves from their less responsible partners is the fastest way to get back on track. I want to thank each of my guests, even the ones that disagreed with me, and my producers, Jade Collins and Hannah Baker. Please join me next week when my guests will be Fanny Bryce, Butch Cassidy, Virgil Tibbs, and Frank Bullitt. This is Strike Talk. I can never get back what I gave to you. Okay, you treated me babe, but I thought it through. I'm not your ooh, 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 ooh. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.